out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. They're talking about you, boy. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we talk about the movies you would not ordinarily study in a film studies course, unless that film studies course was about Japanese animation, in which case, this month's Brigathon, that's right, the Brigham Cole Patron Marathon, Brigham Cole is a uh, well-thought-of uh, and uh, a well-appreciated sponsor uh, for us on Patreon, and the giving total that he uh, donated to the show... Uh, requires of us to allow him to pick a marathon he gave us 15 he's giving us 15 dollars a month so that he can curse us with an anime marathon dustin well, I, curse us is a little strong i'm uh, actually it's the greatest curse i've had a long time this has been so much fun this month i have loved talking all the anime all, all the anime things the film in question this week is Miyazaki's The Wind Rises, not to be confused with The Fire Rising, Mr. Wayne, and uh, what have you and whatnot. We'll be talking about airplanes and Japanese cinema and all kinds of good stuff uh, with all of that. But before we get any further, we do have to identify the people that are speaking to you uh, directly to your brain. We're on a two-man show this week. Arthur is serving as producer, so he is in the room, but it's just the two of us, man. Who are you? Uh, my name's Caleb Masters, and tell me, Oklahoma boy, is The Wind Rising? The wind's always rising in Oklahoma. So uh, thank you very much for that. My name is Dustin Sells, and uh, this mackerel bone is so fascinating. No, really it's not, but that's what they think. And uh, we're going to be talking all about Miyazaki's The Wind Rises here in just a few moments, dear listener. Now, we want to warn you, this is not an, a review show. It's an analysis show, and that means there will be spoilerific spoiler ridges. We are going to talk about how it's all going to go down. Spoiler alert, Japan loses World War II. But uh, we'll talk more about all of that stuff. Jeez, you're a sore winner, Dustin. Good God. I'm just saying, they lose the war. And the movie is something about the war to an extent. Uh, and so, uh, But what we'll do to pr preserve your spoiler sensitivities, if you are spoiler sensitive, dear listener, is we will have a uh, Voice the Cinema synopsis, and then we'll have Caleb and I give our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. And after that, we get down to business, we get down to our analysis, and that is the spoiler zone. So you have now been warned, and you know what you need to do. Listen as you dare. But without any further ado, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. A look at the life of Jiro Horikoshi, the man who designed Japanese fighter planes during World War II. Well, that's fair enough. We do look at him and talk about that, and uh, also special appearances by Super Mario, but more on that anon. Um, hello, Japanese boy. Uh, <laughs> I, was that supposed to be Italian, Dustin? I don't, I, I don't, I didn't get the, I, I, the Italian. Well, I mean, it sounded like you were trying to do Japanese, well, talking about an Italian guy. Well, how do you do Japanese boy in, in, in all that much of an Italian accent? There's no, there's not enough vowels. Japanese boy. You know. that, that's a little better. There you go. You're getting, you're getting closer. So anyway, uh, there you go. Uh, we're going to talk about the film, though, in terms of our experience in watching it. Now, Caleb and I had the chance to watch this together on Glorious Blu-ray. And so we did. Uh, Caleb, why don't you go ahead and open us up and tell us uh, your thumbs up, thumbs up, down reactions to the film. And actually, I'll be honest. Uh, I think The Wind that Rises is an interesting change of pace uh, for the director uh, that he's built the career off of uh, delivering grand tales of whimsy. And I'm going to elaborate a little more on that in my analysis, but I think the change of direction 
was interesting, but didn't necessarily pay off. It didn't really play to his strengths quite as much as I think his as you would expect it to. Uh, I got really bored uh, during a lot of this film. It was too long, and I really didn't care too much about the characters as much as I did the ideas that they were represented. Uh, the, the central idea and struggle of Jiro wrestling uh, with his you know, engineering or artistry, as he looked at it, being kind of misused by the government was an interesting, and it was a really strong backbone to the film that I think compensates for a lot of the weaknesses of the film. But there are still a lot of different shortcomings here. The art direction is spectacular. Looked lovely, super lovely on Blu-ray. And uh, Disney's dubbing continues to be absolutely top-notch. And I, I don't think this is the director's best movie, but I, I do think if you are going to look at Miyazaki, I think it's worth uh, looking at, if for nothing else, to kind of understand the legacy he's trying to leave with this film. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Uh, this movie is very interesting. Uh, as you say, it is stunningly designed and painted and drawn. It is uh, a, an interesting and fascinating mix of Impressionism, uh, like uh, Claude Monet, and alongside Surrealism, like that of uh, you know Max Ernst. Uh, and, and so there's there's a lot, especially in the dream sequences, which are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the, the, the voice cast is quite good. The story itself about designing planes and the sort of tension between designing planes that are beautiful, graceful things upon which to look versus, you know, tools in the machinery of war is an interesting one to be said. Uh, that being said, though, it is also far too sentimental uh, with regard both the art and the love story, which I cannot say I could have cared less about. I just don't care. Why do you hate love, Dustin? I don't hate love. Love is great. It was fate. Fate, Dustin. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, uh, the wind brought the hat to him so he would meet her at the moment of this crazy earthquake, and then the wind would bring the glider to him so he would meet her again. Stupid. Just... The wind rises, Dustin. Come on, bud. Yeah. The... No. <laughs> the fire rises is very cool when you tear a plane apart and then, you know, bungee jump back out of it. That's awesome. But uh, that's why Bane beats uh, Jiro every day of the week, as far as I'm concerned. But... Uh, that being said, it is a fun movie. It is well designed. It is beautiful, and it's got the sweetness. Um, you know, Miyazaki also wrote the screenplay for the Secret World of Ariadne, uh, and it has a similar sort of sweetness in its tone, and I like that a lot about it. And uh, so, you know, it was fine. It was fun. It was. It's not my favorite uh, Ghibli film. It's not my favorite Miyazaki film. Yeah, but you know, I'm. Not mad that I watched it. So there you go, dear listener. Now you know our perspectives coming there. Generally, all right, uh, I think is what we would probably say uh, towards the film. Uh, enough of this foolishness, though. Uh, let's move on, though, and uh, play our game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. That's right, dear listener, and this week's game is our favorite dream sequences. That's right, favorite dream sequences brought to you by Miyazaki's The Wind Rises. The Wind Rises. That wind sure was rising a lot, and strangely was from a French poem and confusing. What was that? You, 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 gotta, you gotta commit, Dustin. You, you, you flubbed out halfway through the, that's right, it's not the wind rising, the fire's rising. Why? I, because the fire equals bombs. I have a, I have a confession to make. Um, and that is, I think the Barker bit we do is stupid. So uh, I have a confession. I think your face is stupid. I love that. That's one of my favorite parts of the show, Dustin. Damn it. I love you, Dalton, even though it's your baby. It's dumb. Uh, anyway, we're going to keep on keeping I love you, Dalton. I love that you do that. And I love that Alex fills in. And I wish Dustin would have let me have done that so I didn't, he didn't wreck it with his non-commitment. <laughs> you had your opportunity, man. You missed it. 
This is all a dream sequence, by the way, listener. This if you're listening, you're wake up. Dalton is actually going to do the voice of this. Well, the dream was squandered in that moment because the weapons of war must wage themselves upon us now as we play our game, which is favorite dream sequences. Um, Mr. Caleb Masters, since there's only the two of us, we'll go back and forth till we run out. What do you say? Oh, man. I, gotta, I, I only prepped a few, but I can go on. I can go on. So, well, so almost, first, first and foremost, obviously, Inception. Um, they're not really, they don't have like any of the real like whimsy or kind of like magical, like pink elephant stuff that you see in dream movies, but it sure makes a badass action sequences and like mind bender puzzles. And it gives you kind of an insight into what Christopher Nolan dreams about, but holy crap, zero gravity dreams, being able to like turn cities on yourself. That is magnificent. You are basically a God in your own universe. Tell me that's not cool. Yeah, absolutely. It is very, very cool. I like that very much. One of my favorite dream sequences also is in a 1940, uh, the first film noir, perhaps, Stranger on the Third Floor, starring Peter Lorre as the villain, in which a uh, character sort of is wrecked by the possibility of going to jail because of some of the crimes that he may or may not have committed. And it is a super expressionist, super, super interesting uh, dream sequence that begins a spate of dream sequences being used uh, in film noir, inspired by the avant-garde. Okay, well, you're talking about going back to the, the uh, what, 30s. So uh, I'm thinking uh, Dumbo. Dumbo. The pink elephants the pink on parade. The pink elephants in on parade. Wow. As a, even as a child, I was baffled by that sequence. I remember thinking, what the hey is going on here, man? And I was like, why don't my dreams look like that? They're so colorful and pink and animals everywhere. I wanted dreams like that. And as an adult, now I'm terrified. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm terrified I'm going to have a dream like that one day because, man, that is trippy stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Good pick, good selection. Let's go back to 1945 and look at uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound. Stay tuned on the cast who knew too much when we finally get to this particular film in as we work our way through uh, Hitchcock's work. But the uh, dream sequence in this film, in which Gregory Peck is a amnesiac, is uh, designed and uh, painted by and inspired by work from Salvador Dali, who was on set. And so uh, as dreams and surrealism all have this great connection anyway, uh, especially in contemporary art, we actually see the artist of surrealism, sort of the primary face of surrealism in Salvador Dali, design these works. And uh, it is fascinating and brilliant and beautiful and wonderful and absolutely worth your time. Um, yeah, I want to go to something a little, uh, most of my more contemporary picks as opposed to Dustin's that are kind of older ones. Uh, one here that I really like, one that really gets under my skin every time I think about it actually, is the dream sequence from Train Spotting, in which Ewan McGregor is totally strung out, uh, trying to recover from his heroin addiction and is having all those crazy loopy dreams, baby faces on the ceiling and all sorts of craziness. That's horrifying. Horrifying. That's a nightmare. Um, I think it's really great, though. I like it. I think it's one of the best done in film because, holy crap, if that doesn't burn an image in the back of your brain and and, and uh, kind of uh, make you rethink ever considering doing heroin of any sorts, that dream sequence is it. Absolutely, absolutely. That is a disturbing, disturbing moment. Uh, let's do move it a little bit more contemporary. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. And I'm talking about pretty much after the first five minutes until about the last 30 minutes, uh, which is all entirely a dream sequence, which is very closely related to that which happens before. Spoilers, ahoy, dear listener. But really, you almost need that information before you watch the movie anyway. So, But I do love that uh, film as dream sequence very, very much. Yeah, uh, I want to just throw out uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I was trying to find one in particular, but all of them, they're all pretty good, even the ones that are really goofy. There are some that are stupid, but there are some that are terrifying. I mean, Blood Volcano is pretty great uh, from the original. You have the bathtub scene from the original. Then you've got one, like, really weird ones in uh, 5, which is the dream child. We've got the guy going into the comic book reality thing. That was kind of cool. Um, the, uh, the, the one of the, the marionette girl where her veins are being used is, like, strings 
terrifying. Ugh. Absolutely terrifying. Ugh. I, believe, uh, yeah. I believe it's a dude, but yes. Is it a guy? It is a guy. You're it's right. Dude, oh, yeah. my gosh. You're wheelchair. totally right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Oh, yeah. You're totally right. Um, all, I mean, there's, they get, they get pretty, get pretty disturbing. Some of those, I mean, they, they range for all over the place, but I think all of them are pretty good. I mean, they're usually, I think I'd say about 90% of those dream sequences are pretty, pretty good stuff. I would say. Absolutely. I, think. I mean, visually designed. I mean, you know, you may exactly. have critiques that one would make against an Iron Elm Street series. Um, I would not wish to hear them. However, that being said, uh, they are definitely well-designed visually and well worth your time. But there you go, dear listener. Now you have some of our picks for favorite dream sequences. Oh, lastly, does someone throw one more? Okay, one go more. ahead. Yeah, yeah. Terminator 2 Judgment Day nuke out sequence. Yes. That, that is, that, I saw that one. I can't believe I saw, that was actually on t- the TV cut, by the way. They left that on TV, the TV cut. And I saw that when I was like eight or nine, and I have never forgotten that dream sequence at all. And it really ha- opened me up to the idea of, oh, shit, this is nuclear war. This is what this can do. I mean, this is what the, the, these films are, you know, warning us against and everything. And uh, yeah, one of the most powerful, like, uh, as far as me personally, particularly with nuclear war, most powerful visuals I've ever seen. Yeah, Sarah Connor's flesh turning into ash, exposing her skeleton, is absolutely. She watches the kids terrifying. on the playground. Ugh. Yeah, it, it is absolutely terrifying. I like that pick a lot, Mr. Caleb Masters. Uh, stay tuned, dear listener, for uh, the uh, feedback section in which you will find ways and opportunities by which you can subject us to your favorite dream sequences. Go ahead and send a link. Why not? Uh, they're all available on YouTube. Everything that we've named so far, you can find on YouTube. And I am certain that uh, we would like to look at more dream sequences because those things make us all very happy. So without any further ado, let's get down to business. And that business in question, dear listener, is, as always, analysis. I am so excited to be doing some analysis with this film. Mr. Caleb Masters, what analysis have you brought with us today? Yeah, uh, The Wind Rises uh, is a really uh, interesting film in a lot of ways. Uh, I really fascinated by the big picture revelations Miyazaki seems to be wrestling with kind of at the twilight of his career. Now this film took like seven years to make, by the way, this was a long gestating project before it finally, you know, saw the big screen. And I think it's because the film, despite not being his strongest film feels incredibly personal to Miyazaki, especially if you start to delve into the guy's uh, history at all. Uh, I think it's a really poignant and somewhat overly sentimental period uh, at the end of his career. But I, I do believe you can read the film where Jiro is kind of a, a surrogate for the director uh, in which he uses he uses Jiro as a means to work out the decisions he's made in his life as an artist. And I think uh, you can I think the, the the projection there you look at is Jiro is an engineer who designs plane. Now here's a little bit of history about Miyazaki. His dad designed helped build the A6, the World War, was, I don't know, the planes that would go on to bomb Pearl Harbor. Uh, his father owned a company called the Miyazaki Airplane Company, and they designed like the rudders that would, would steer the plane. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, uh, Miyazaki, throughout his entire body of work, you see a fascination with planes. You go back to Nausicaa, we watched that, and the Wind Valley planes are a big deal there. Uh, he he had, um, he has the the film, I, I, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but where he has... Uh, there's the one with the pig flying the planes and things like that. Uh, they're really interesting film there. But I mean, planes are used over and over again. So he has a very big fascination, you can see. So it would make sense for him to go back to World War II, a period in which you know his father contributed to, uh, and look at you know engineers kind of as artists. So the moral dilemma that Jiro uh, that Jiro is wrestling with, I found to be both inspiring and very self defeating um, because even 
when his uh, creation was being used for malevolent purposes, you know, it, it, the film begs the question, like, what artist wouldn't pursue their life's dreams given the opportunity? Now, I think you, I think you can draw a lot of parallels between this and Miyazaki. Miyazaki, who has spent his entire life working in animation and industry, and which is an industry in 2014, he publicly criticized, uh, saying that it the it catered too much to otaku uh, and producing uh, an excess of uh, lolicon themed uh, shows. Now, otaku, uh, for those of you who don't know, is do kind translate of, yes, yeah. So, otaku is kind of like guys who watch a lot of the very sexualized, hyper violence uh, anime. Ew. Um, yeah, typically people who are really hardcore into it, and then the lolly lolicon anime is. Anime featuring young girls. Ew. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, mass-produced in Japan. So clearly he has issues with where anime has gone, at least in mass production in Japan. Uh, and I, so I don't, I don't think it's coincidental that the filmmaker picked a very cr- uh, reflective character drama over his more typical whimsy fare with his final project. Because in the same way that Jiro is constantly reflecting on his decision to design planes as a piece of art, only for them to be used for war, Miyazaki is is reflecting on you know building this career in animation, uh, really being fundamental to. Uh, the popularity of anime in the last 50 years only for it to be misused by, you know, a capitalist, uh, reproduction, um, mass production, I should say, um, across the world. Uh, so I think he's drawing a lot of inspiration from these others in history who have made beautiful yet cu- culturally destructive works and trying really hard to resolve his own decisions to participate in this mass produced art, uh, for capitalist gain. And I think he's, it, while the film here is is very clearly criticizing the larger superstructure. In the case of the film, he's criticizing the Japanese government. Uh, a, a point is, he actually got a lot of slack from the Japanese government, current day Japanese government, for being anti-Japanese uh, when this film got released. It was kind of a controversy over in the over on the islands. Um, and but he's not. He's clearly against that. He's very clearly against the capitalist establishment, based on remarks he said. Uh, but at the same time, he still participates in it. It's the only way his work gets out. And while I, the film, you know, by the closing moments, it leaves the you know the morality of the engineer Jiro uh, ambiguous. It does beg the question, and it, it, he goes a little soft on him. He, he he does. He doesn't. I don't. I don't feel like Miyazaki makes a a strong criticism or praise for the artists in this film rather he leaves it up for us to decide exactly how we feel is it okay to participate in something to make something beautiful and and do the thing you love if the thing you love is contributing to larger world issues um and i i i don't think he makes a clear statement on it all because ultimately i feel like he is sympathizing with jiro but at the same time kind of presenting this idea that hey the, the the world you're helping build is destructive and bad for us i don't blame you but is this really something you I mean, would you do it again if you had the decision? And uh, lots of powerful imagery you see, in, in all, most, mostly in the dream sequences, where you see him, the beauty of the planes and all of a sudden, you know, they, they're all flying around. Then you see them like freaking, you don't see them kamikaze, into st- but you see them flying towards the ground. You see the nukes blowing up in the background, all sorts of uh, really powerful, stunning imagery. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, one, the way you can kind of wrap up this, uh, wrap up, uh, to wrap up my, sorry. To kind of conclude my analysis, I think Miyazaki has made a career out of telling challenging stories full of environmental and anti-war commentary. And this film, while not making a strong statement about artistry, is certainly trying to challenge 
the very artists that he has inspired generations of, saying, listen, guys, maybe we should stop and think about how we're, how we're doing this. Not necessarily criticizing them, but also saying we're participating in this thing, and maybe my mistake was to perpetuate versus to stand against it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. And I want to kind of tag on to some of those ideas because there's definitely a left-leaning leaning tendency here. Uh, I was going to say left-wing and uh, leaning at the same time, which turned into left-weaning, apparently. So I'm not sure why that happened. But um, nonetheless, uh, we are talking about, uh, again, this sort of criti- criticism of nationalism, of militarization, and uh, those kind of things in the context of kind of re-massaging and reconstructing what it is to be an airplane designer. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from the art and artistry of that, but we definitely see Jiro as much more of a poet than any of the engineers I've ever known. And uh, and so there is a romanticization that's going on there uh, with the character. But that being said, it is, again, as you said in your analysis, is making sort of a connection between this form of art making for negative and uh, hurtful, harmful ends versus, you know, what's happened with uh, anime as a uh, genre slash uh, style of filmmaking from Japan. And uh, what it does, though, is critique, again, the system that turns these works of art into either the objects and machinery of war or into objects and machinery of just pure commerce and uh, earning more and more money and more cash. And, uh, of course, the film is a period piece. It's set in the 1930s, well, the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s, if you want to be very, very accurate about it. And um, what I wanted to say is just to drop a little knowledge here in the history of Japanese cinema. This is not something I've talked about in iProtein lately in uh, my series of Japanese uh, cinema articles that I've written for the uh, to sort of be companion pieces to this anime marathon it, it is that there in the 1920s uh, especially uh, there was a period in which they had what they called the tendency films and uh, the tendency films were again very very left leaning uh, they were very very Marxist in their approach they were anti-nationalist they were anti-militaristic and there, there's quite a few of them that were being made at the time and uh, they, they were actually part of this uh, independent film uh, commune that was working in Japan called the Proletarian Film League of Japan, uh, and uh, these tendency films were made uh, overwhelmingly by the, this company and others like it. Uh, even some of the big names in uh, Japanese cinema, like uh, Kenji Mizuguchi, uh, was involved in making films like this. I could not recommend more highly uh, his Metropolitan Symphony uh, from 1929, uh, and it's definitely worth your time. But if you look at a film like that, which is about the city and it's about what's going on in terms of modernization and socialization. That's happening as as Japan is reaching in more and more into the 20th and forward towards the 21st century, even in the early parts of the 20th, you find uh, that there is this fear of dehumanization, there's this fear of, again, hyper-militarization, and uh, just this alienation that one might experience uh, based on uh, that that structure. But people want to design new buildings, and people want to design new technologies, people want to make new art. And those things can be used uh, by the apparatus of the state uh, for various reasons. And so as this uh, movement, these tendency films happen in the 1920s that are trying to lean away from militarization, nationalization, um, na- nationalism, excuse me. 
and those kind of things, they give way to a burgeoning film industry, which in the 1930s was overwhelmingly militaristic and nationalistic in its tenor. The 1930s in, in Japanese film is almost all war stories about the heroes of war and trying to, you know, they're propaganda pieces to get more young men to uh, go ahead and enlist and more women to be stalwart and faithful and not do anything they can to sort of truck, talk their man out of going up and, and joining in and fighting for the empire. And uh, so it, it, it's crazy how that happened in that moment in history. And, and to an extent, The Wind Rises reflects exactly those sorts of things thematically uh, throughout the course of it. So I guess what I want to do here is just give you that bit of history. Uh, again, check out uh, the, the Metropolitan Symphony by um, Mitsuguchi. Uh, Kenji Mitsuguchi is definitely worth your time anyway uh, as a director from Japan. If we hadn't had a man called Akira Kurosawa, when we named two film directors from Japan, it would have been Ozu and Mitsuguchi rather than Ozu and Kurosawa. I'm pretty certain he is amazing and brilliant in all the ways. So, there you go, dear listener. You've now heard our analysis as we've analyzed this particular film. Let's take a moment, though, uh, before we continue in our show and hear a word from our sponsors. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Money, 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 money. <laughs> This week, we want to thank our sponsor, Daniel Austin, for his recent contribution to Patreon. Daniel, thank you so much. And it is thanks to patrons such as Daniel that we are able to deliver the quality and quantity of content that we do. Because of the pledges of our wonderful patrons, we've been able to get business cards, upgrade equipment, purchase a camera for live streaming, and that is just the tip of the iceberg for 2016. We have so many surprises in store for you, dear listener. So again, to those who have pledged, thank you. Thank you so much. And if you're not sure about pledging, uh, but want more information, then go to patreon.com forward slash GTGC. That's patreon.com forward slash GTGC. Or go to goodtrashmedia.com and click become a patron. Again, thank you so much. And back to the show. I think she smell my cologne. It's called brand new money. Make them make your moves. Man, ain't a damn thing funny. Pimpin' hood rats to playboy bunnies. They see the money, money, money. That's right, my cologne also is brand new money. But moving right along, we enter a point in the show at which we must render a verdict. And the verdict that we have assigned to ourselves is shelf or trash for the wind rises, and then our else's or instead's. Fascinated to hear what you're going to say, Mr. Caleb Masters. Shelf or trash, else or instead. Yeah, I mean, it's on my shelf because I purchased the Miyazaki collection, so I have every Miyazaki-directed film. Uh, so it's on my shelf, but it is a nice collection, by the way. Very nice collection. Very cool. I, this film is worthy of Miyazaki. So I think if you're a diehard Miyazaki fan, it's a shelfer because I still think there's enough good here. There's a lot of interesting things going on here, and there is something really cool about having this film that's very reflective on you know the the, the works he's done so far. But for everyone else, I mean, if, even if you're just a casual Miyazaki fan, this is a trasher. I mean, you'll probably watch it once. You'll probably say, oh, that was, you know, decent. Maybe you're interested in some of the ideas there. But I, I don't feel like it's a film you're going to want to go back and revisit all that often. I mean, I, I know as a really big fan of Miyazaki, it's one I probably am not going to – I don't have any plans to see again in the near future. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, again, only uh, – it's a shelfer for diehards. For everyone else, just – just trash it. Not that it's not worth watching, but not worth putting on your shelf. Else, you know, there's a really, like, I honestly think this is uh, mandatory viewing. 
uh, I would say, is there's this really great documentary about going inside Studio Ghibli that came out in 2013 called The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, where they go inside the studio following the production of The Wind Rises, as well as uh, another film that is being produced. And you just get a real insight uh, into some of the drama going on behind the scenes that led up to the hiatus of studio ghibli and you get a, you get some really interesting a really interesting perspective on miyazaki himself uh, as he this, this guy who is essentially walt disney who has crafted this beautiful whimsical world is actually not quite so optimistic about anything he's actually very uh pessimistic about a lot which is really there's a hint of tragedy there but it also kind of paints a bigger picture of as to why he would want to create such beautiful whimsical worlds and um there's really interesting things going on behind the scenes there um but I think if you're if you're a Ghibli fan at all, that it, it must require watching. It, it's so good and so interesting and so insightful. Uh, also, if you're into the the airplanes, I think you go look at the Aviator because Leo, you know, and Scorsese, you can't go wrong there. It's not my favorite of the pairing of the two, but it's still a lot of fun. There's some really interesting stuff going on about airplanes there. Uh, if you want to go along with my analysis, where a an inventor has his invention uh, misused, or a uh, you know engineer has his. Uh, his invention invention misused for you know evil maniacal purposes you go watch back to the future 2 in which biff takes control of the uh delorean and lastly if you want to see a cool action movie about airplanes that miyazaki would absolutely detest and be upset involved airplanes you go watch air force one because harrison ford fighting terrorist mothers motherfuckers that's about all i got dustin all righty thank you very much you know what caleb Get off my plane. Uh, no, I no, that's fine. And the fire I, rises. <laughs> what I'd say, there's the mashup right there. The wind rises. Batman. Uh, golly, the Dark Knight rises and uh, Air Force One. That has got to happen. A triple show. I'd watch that. Oh my gosh, something something definitely could be made. I'm gonna say trash, guys, because I am not the guy that Caleb described. I am a casual Miyazaki fan, and I've seen a lot of stuff, and I've liked most of it. Uh, but this one is it, again, it's slow. It it, it stayed. It, it's definitely painterly and uh, gorgeous to look at, which is fine. Um, and I, I like what's going on with it. I really wanted more and more of the dream sequences, and less and less of either Zero's life, and especially less of his love life, because I just didn't care. And so that's what I would say uh, regarding that. I'm only going to recommend one film, and that is, again, let's do an American perspective on post-war Japan. So a 1950s film starring Marlon Brando and Red Buttons called Sayonara. It's semi-musical. It's uh, in, in Technicolor, and it's beautiful and beautifully shot. Uh, it, it's got a lot of the same sort of uh, ideological problems that you're going to have with any film from the 1950s anyway. But it's a sort of about, uh, it's a Romeo and Juliet story. It's, it's a sort of uh, story of star-crossed lovers and interracial marriage. And is it okay to love some Somebody of a different race and uh, what have you and whatnot. And it has some interesting conclusions, I think, in some ways progressive for the time, in many ways regressive for the time in which we live now. So those are my recommends for all of that. Now, we do have social media means by which you could be part of this conversation. Me and Caleb, we're buddies. We do this stuff all the time anyway. We're just talking. We're talking about movies. That's what we do. Uh, but we want to talk with you about it. That's why we're spending all this time in a studio talking into microphones so that you'll hear it and then you'll say things to us. Caleb, where can we be found so they can have that conversation with us? Yeah, well, of course, you can find us on uh, the, the good old Facebook at facebook.com slash goodtrashmedia. If you want to go ahead and hit us up there, give us a leave us some comments, some thoughts on on The Wind Rises or any of the other shows we do here on Good Trash Media, whether it's uh, Back to the Movie Zootopia, Man of Steel, whether it's uh, the film syllabus with uh, The Quay, uh, any of those films, any of those films at all, go ahead and comment and head there. Uh, or 
If you want to, if you're not Facebook isn't your speed, and you like those shortened 140 character or less conversations, you head over to Twitter at twitter.com and uh, follow us uh, at our Twitter handle at good underscore trash. It's lots of fun on the Twitter, guys. And of course, as I've already stated, you can find you can even leave comments on goodtrashmedia.com. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. We now move into a, something interesting. We're moving away from our Brigathon. We're saying goodbye to the island of Japan for a now and uh, moving into something else. And we have a bingo ball hopper here. We with on which 70 some odd balls, 70 some odd different films that we've all pitched in as a crew, although Alex and Dalton are not here right now. And we're going to roll the dice right now and select a film for next week. Let's do that. Big money, big money, big money, big money, big money. All righty, I now have Justin, what is it? in I, my I fingers. Need to know. I'm going to read it what right do we watch now. It next week? Hold on, I can have a, Oh, it is Cloud Atlas, yes! Caleb. Yes, Cloud Atlas. There you go. Fun time. So oh, we're going to take a look at that. Take a look at The Wind Rises. Take a look at any movie and have a conversation because the movies are so much more fun than just 90 minutes or longer and a bucket of popcorn. They are about the conversation that helps us learn how to live and love and be more human. So do that, and we'll see you all next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandra Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genrecast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com.